0: Well, if you are a driver in this province, you likely paid attention to this story. We found out this past week just how much ICBC wants to raise the rates. Submitting its application yesterday for a spring 2019 increase in insurance rates. The number is not the highest it could have been, but I think it's still at a level where a lot of people would like to see their salaries go up by this much. That doesn't Happen, talking about uh, the average driver seeing about a 6.3% increase in your ICBC rates. And again, there are... Tweaks and such. It depends on your driving record. It depends on, uh, well, on a lot of factors. But that is what the insurance corporation has uh, applied for. And uh, in a moment, we're going to check in with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. But first, uh, take a listen to uh, this uh, quick comment. This was uh, Nicholas Jimenez. He is the CEO of ICBC. And he was speaking uh, here on CKNW yesterday uh, with Mike Smith. They covered a lot of topics or a lot of parts of this announcement. Uh, but this was. Uh, Nicolas Jimenez, as uh, saying that, you know, things could have been a lot worse.
1: The encouraging sign in this is that it could have been a lot worse. So uh, it could have been over 40 percent if we hadn't uh, done the, the reforms that have been talked about through the year. This is, you know, the reforms being the uh, the caps on pain and suffering for minor injuries and the establishment of a new dispute resolution mechanism. So, you know, these are really important changes that are trying to bring in uh, you know, not only large savings into the system, but also to kind of change the way we think about the system. Right now, it's, it's not focused enough on injury recovery, and that's, that's one of the big changes uh, that we've been trying to make.
0: Let's bring in Chris Sims. She's the BC Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, good morning. Good morning. Uh, what's your response? Uh, 6.3% is what ICBC is looking at as far as the rate increase, uh, and uh, the CEO saying it could
2: have been a lot worse. I just get a kick out of these politicians and uh, longtime bureaucrats in the case of ICBC basically saying, look, it could have been so much worse. Aren't you happy with us that we're only increasing it by this much? It's really the oldest trick in the book, where they come out beforehand and say, oh, it's going to be gigantic. Then they come in with a raise that's slightly less than gigantic, and then they tell you to be grateful. Um, Our problem with this is that ICBC structurally has a major issue in that it is a government-forced monopoly. It was started in the 1970s, which is basically the opposite of something that is innovative, nimble, and efficient. And that is why we are seeing our rates going up and up and up every year And we are the highest one in all of Canada already. It's not as if we're starting from behind the pack here and we're slowly raising our rates. We're already way above everybody else. And we're already paying the highest amount. And now we're paying more. So we're not happy with this. The other caution we had with this is even though 6.3 sounds lower than what some people were worried about, that's just for the basic. They didn't announce any number changes on optional rates yet. And last time around, when they increased their optional rates, they increased them by around 9 or 10 percent, and yet no number yesterday on optional. So that's a cause for concern.
0: And I know uh, Mike Smith did ask uh, the CEO about Mm -hmm. that, and uh, I get his answer. He was saying, look, this is where we compete with other uh, companies, other insurance companies. We can't show our hand right now in saying how much those rates are going to go up. So I I kind of get that, uh, what he's saying, but that's not much comfort, you're right, for taxpayers who do get their optional insurance through ICBC and have no idea exactly how much that one's going up either.
2: Yes, exactly. And most people do get their optional through ICBC. I don't know if it's because they find it slightly more affordable or because they just don't know quite often that they can shop around a little bit for their optional. And again, that's for the extras, not for your mandatory basic coverage. But every other time they have announced the optional change. So it's a bit too cute by half to have him saying yesterday on Smitty's show, oh, well, we can't let everybody else know. I mean, there must be another reason why they're not telling us. Uh, there was also
0: uh, the, the question of opening it up, and I know mm-hmm. you've talked about this before, the idea of, of perhaps a co-op uh, co op scenario, so there's still uh, ICBC in some form if people choose that, but there uh, is other insurance options as well for the basic uh, insurance. Uh, listen to this, because uh, Mike Smith also asked uh, Nicholas Jimenez about this, and th- there was a Twitter poll that he did yesterday, too. I think it was 81% of the listeners said, yeah, they should be competing with private companies for basic. You
1: know, the whole public-private Debate? I think it's a legitimate debate. Um, obviously, if you look across Canada, there's different provinces with different models. Some have private, some have, have public. Um, so and I think that that's a fair debate. Now, that's government policy, and, and that's not a debate that will lead, um, but I think it's a fair debate to have. What I will say, though, is that the problems we have today in BC. Uh, are a function of the tort system. So the tort system isn't a public or private context. If you're a private insurance company, you're experiencing the same challenges with a full tort model on your extension projects as products as we are. Um, so I think if you were to, if a private carrier today was to sell basic insurance, they would have the exact same challenges we would. It's a regulated okay. product. Yeah. Um, you have mandated. Uh, you know, terms and conditions that are set out in uh, in, a, in a regulation uh, or, or multiple pieces of the regulation. So the, to conflate the two, I think sort of misses the point. I think it's it, they're fair debates to have, but they're different debates.
2: So how do you respond to that? Uh, these aren't different debates. And of course, any insurance company would have to deal with these sorts of systems. That's almost like saying reality exists. And so I really was glad that he was on the air for so long because it was quite revealing. And our point here is that what matters is for the drivers. What matters is for the commuters, for the people listening right now to this radio station who are trying to get to work or get out there and do some Christmas shopping in their cars. And they're paying through the nose. And so, yeah, any private company, any insurance company would have to deal with drivers. They would have to deal with risk and probability. That's the point of the insurance system. The thing with ICBC is that it's more expensive here in British Columbia than anywhere else in Canada, and that is the problem. So if you go to Alberta, for example, they usually pay way less in auto insurance. Why? Because you can shop around there. And I I just keep trying to bring it back to this issue of competition. Just imagine if we had only one grocery store chain in all of BC, just one, and the government ran it. Like, what kind of food do you think would be available there? What kind of service do you think we would see? We would have things like what was shown by Global News just very recently, that we don't have any access to online and that they're wasting money through not allowing us to renew online. Like hundreds of thousands of dollars in money. And so it's problems like that that makes a lot of people very frustrated here in British Columbia. And they really just want choice. I don't think they care about ICBC's perfect model. They just want to be able to shop around and find lower rates. And the point is right now, we're forced to deal with ICBC. It's a monopoly, and that's just fundamentally unfair. Uh, so do you think it's a convenience thing that, that more people aren't purchasing their optional
0: insurance? Because under that reasoning, you would think that because there is choice for the
2: optional mm-hmm. part of your insurance, that people would go elsewhere. That's a great question. It was actually something that I was asking when I first got back here from living in Ontario for so long. One, I think a lot of people don't know uh, that they can shop around for their optional insurance. Two, actually, because these other companies that kind of compete with ICBC for optional, they don't have access to our data. So ICBC does not share the demographics, doesn't share the incidence reports, doesn't share anything like that with any other company. And of course, companies for insurance base everything on data and risk and probability. And apparently these other companies that are allowed in BC to do something within the optional range are just operating in the dark. They're not able to really get surgical with their, with their offers and they're not able to really be competitive because they're operating in the dark which I found really interesting when the head of ICBC there said that he wasn't going to share any data again on the air for things like optional. So apparently that's a problem. And then also, just speaking personally, last time I was in renewing my own auto insurance, I just asked and I said, oh, you know, are there any other options for optional? And the person who was helping me almost didn't know. Hmm. They just went with ICBC anyway.
0: All right. Well, the the rates are likely going up. Mm -hmm. We know that for drivers. Chris Sims, we will talk to you again about this, I'm sure. But thank you so much for your time this morning. Always good to have you on the show. Likewise. Thank you. Well, a move by the federal government when it comes to supervised consumption sites is being applauded by a group. The group is called the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs. And joining me to talk a bit more about this and how things are changing is Jordan Westfall, who's the executive director of that group. Jordan, thank you so much for being with us this morning.
3: Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: what has changed when it comes to uh, supervised consumption sites?
3: Well... Previously, groups would have to apply directly to the federal government for an exemption uh, to Canada's drug laws to operate a supervised consumption site. But they'd also need the permission of their provincial government as well and a funding guarantee from their provincial government. Uh, under these new regulations, uh e- uh, organizations can apply to, super- to get supervised consumption sites themselves. Community-based organizations can and municipal governments uh, completely bypassing uh, provincial governments that may be hostile to harm reduction services or overdose prevention services like we see in Ontario with the Ford government.
0: And so do you see this leading to more sites opening up then?
3: Yes, it. It allows a lot more flexibility, uh, like, in, for example, in, in certain parts of British Columbia where overdose rates are high, but there aren't any supervised consumption sites. Uh, I'm thinking of Quesnel up north. Uh, community-based organizations can apply directly to the government uh, and completely bypass the bureaucracy at lower levels of government, uh, either provincially or at the health authority level. So it's, it's a really important step. protecting these services uh, from, as we know, they're still very controversial. Uh, It's a big step in protecting them from governments that, you know, might be hostile to them.
0: And are there concerns, though, that that this will take the take the power away from uh, the government at a provincial level, in that it, that it won't have any control over where uh, consumption sites might be set up? Uh, in like some communities, might have um, several. Some communities still might not have any at all.
3: I, I don't think so. I there's still a, there's, it's still a very regulated service. Uh, Like uh, being that you have to apply to the federal government to open one, uh, and that still there's still regulations in place, and they have to. And the supervised consumption sites have to be in basically have to be in code, right? So they have to be uh, they have to be regulated the way the federal government wants them regulated. So it's it's really more a step to ensure that the the provincial governments. Don't necessarily have a say over a life-saving service,
0: and I think for the, for the most part, when we get the numbers and when we we talk about opioid, the opioid crisis and overdoses, I think people, I mean, you you can't really dispute those numbers. In that people aren't dying in this in the supervised consumption sites. Where they're dying is where they're not supervised, where they're home alone, where they're, where they're in places where there isn't somebody to help them should they uh, have a bad drug. Uh, but one of the concerns I often hear about this is that when you open the consumption sites it's still, because the drugs themselves are still illegal, it is still feeding uh, criminal activity in that people still have to do whatever it is that they're doing to get the drugs in the first place to go to the sites and there is that concern that uh, crime rates might go up uh, or, or that it's still feeding this this criminal activity. What do you say to that?
3: Well, drugs are illegal, and um, you know, mostly bought on the uh, on the illicit market. Um, that that being said, uh, the the risk of crime rates going up uh, is I don't think been shown to be proven uh, because you know people are already using these drugs. Adding a supervised consumption site does not change that. It doesn't increase the number of people using these drugs. However, it will increase the amount of people going to the supervised consumption site, of course, uh, which is a good thing uh, for, for a community, for example, where there is a lot of needles discarded. Uh, having a supervised consumption site gives people a place to, you know, to use and that reduces the amount of you know needles and discarded needles and littering, as, as you would say.
0: Uh, although I've I've heard from people as well, and in particular, uh, a journalist living in Edmonton who who said since the sites have opened up in his neighborhood, it's actually been an increase in needles because of the activity around the site.
3: Right. Uh, for for examples like that, there is a need to there is a need to make sure that the neighborhood is taken care of, and that there's um, you know a community uh, people working at the sites, um, you know, doing a little bit of outreach around the community to making sure. Uh, That doesn't happen.
0: And is there also a a push to or or what do we see as far as it's one thing to have a supervised consumption site. And again, we know the numbers uh, that people aren't dying in these sites. Are people accessing help, though? And is the goal, the main the, the goal, the end goal in this to not have to use the site at all to to get away from using the drugs? However often you're using the drugs.
3: I think the most immediate goal being, if this is a public health emergency, is simply to keep people alive. Now, a supervised consumption site is a great place for people to get access to a variety of different services as well. healthcare, care, uh, housing, employment services. Uh, it's, it's, a really, it's a really strong place, uh, a catalyst, I'd say, to getting people into these services.
0: And would and do you think that will increase then if we see more sites uh, going into more neighborhoods?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, and you will see obviously more lives saved. And you know, for a human, for a person that's using drugs, uh, you know, we can't, we can't, someone can't go to treatment if they're dead, right? So we need to have, we need to have these these sites across the country and across the province. Um, now, for 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 every individual, it's a different scenario. Some people, you know, it might mean just reducing their drug use eventually. Other people might ultimately abstain from drugs altogether, and some people may continue to use. And you know, the important thing is that even if you are using drugs, your your life is still important. And we, we that's you know basically what a supervised consumption site. Uh, as a service is telling people that, you know, it's okay uh, if you are using, we aren't going to judge you here. And, you know, that's crucial because in in our society, uh, drug use is so deeply stigmatized and discriminated against.
0: I think we we heard uh, this week or this past week as well uh, from the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada uh, saying that this is a good step, but until we look at the supply and review ways to make the supply safer, it still doesn't go far enough. What would you like to see done on that front?
3: I I would like to see um, at all supervised consumption sites and overdose prevention sites access points to safe drugs to safe supply uh drugs like hydromorphone or heroin diacetylmorphine these these drugs need to be available to people and not just not just at OPSs but also you know allowing people to to take a safe supply home for a day at a time or two days at a time um, to to reduce the barriers of You know, going to a supervised consumption site every single day, this, you know, helps people lead more productive lives and uh, greatly reduces the risk of overdose death. Um, You know, most Canadians, they can take a sip of a beer and not worry that they'll drop dead suddenly. And we want to see the same thing for everybody who is using drugs.
0: Uh, Do you see that happening?
3: I see a lot of pro. I see see a lot of momentum towards it. Uh, It's going to it's it's frustratingly slow but i mean the signal from uh dr Teresa tam is is a positive thing that you know the federal government is taking this very seriously and that the public should as well That's canada's you know chief public health officer and they're saying that you know this is a systemic issue uh the drug supply is tainted across the country and until we do something radically different the the deaths will continue
0: And is it looking at, when you mentioned as well or earlier talked about the stigma attached to this, and certainly there is, are we getting a better sense or a better picture of who it is that's that's addicted, who it is that is using these drugs? I mean, even here in BC this past week, there was a story, a school board putting out the alarm that pills that were were meant to look like Xanax had fentanyl in them and the concern that they could be fatal. Are, Are we getting a better sense of who it is that we're talking about when we talk about people who use drugs?
3: I think I think slowly that is changing. But uh, among the general public, there's still an, a very, um, you know, it's an unfortunate belief, a misconception that that happens to, to these people or to, to this group of people. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't affect my community or my neighborhood. Um, recently, um, the minister of British Columbia's minister of agriculture just lost their stepson to an overdose. And and I mean, that goes to show that, you know, even even in families with, you know, high ranking politicians, it's it's still happening.
0: All right, uh, Jordan, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for coming back on the program again this morning. Uh, Always good to talk to you. Thank you again.
3: Okay, thank you very much.
0: Well, this month, it is the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Ortona during the Second World War. And Canadians from coast to coast during the 1943 Christmas season were following the events that took place in Ortona. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this and a very interesting tradition that is still happening today is Rod Huffmeister, Honorary Colonel with the uh, Seaforth Highlanders of Canada. Rod, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, talk a little bit about the Battle of Ortona and the significance of it, if you can. Well, the
4: Battle of Ortona uh, took place over eight days in the December of 1943. Uh, the the uh, town of Ortona is on the east coast of Italy, almost directly across from Rome. It was. It is a small port town. Um, the Canadians thought that it was not going to be very heavily defended, and they felt that it would be useful to have that port as a way of uh, bringing in supplies to support uh, their efforts in the in Italy. However, when they uh, started to probe, uh, they found that uh, it was very heavily defended by uh, German paratroopers, and it became just a an absolutely horrible. Uh, house by house, street by street, battle that uh, took place from December 20th to through the uh, 28th. The Sea Force had over 42 killed and 78 wounded during that short period. Uh, it was 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 just awful. And uh, uh, my involvement is that uh, my dad was the uh, brigade commander of the. Uh, Second Infantry Brigade that uh, had the Loyal Edmonton's the Sea Force and the Princess Patricia's, so he was directly involved
0: in the campaign. Wow! So, so you've been—you uh, have a, a personal connection to this.
4: I do, and uh, uh, like most veterans, he didn't talk about it much. But uh, I've learned a lot uh, subsequent to it, and uh, it was uh, a, a very much a seminal battle uh, in World War II. And uh, they called it the Little Stalingrad because the whole idea was to surround the Germans that were in the town and uh, capture them. However, they, they just drifted off on the 28th of December and uh, that, that wasn't uh, accomplished.
0: And, and looking back at it now and, and some of the writing about it, as well, and like you mentioned, they didn't expect that it would be uh, as, as protected or as guarded as it was, but uh, destri- described now literally as a death trap.
4: Yeah, um, the Germans uh, did a lot of uh, demolitions in the town before the Canadians arrived and tried to focus them down the uh, main drag of the town by blocking all of the other smaller streets. And that was just a kill zone. And the uh, Canadians very shortly found that the only way to survive was to go house to house. And so what they did was they took... uh, Uh, Various types of demolitions, including some of the German mines, and they'd lay them up against uh, the common wall between one building and the next, blow it, and then uh, go through and uh, clear the next building without ever going out on the street. They called it mouse-holding, and uh, that became uh, pretty much uh, part of the military doctrine.
2: Hmm.
0: It's it's fascinating to to look back and and to get some of these details about this because unless I've missed it, it seems like it's one of the battles. So we don't talk a lot about. Well, I
4: think the whole Italian campaign has been somewhat uh, overshadowed by uh, the uh, campaign in North Europe that took place uh, the following year.
0: And why do you think that that just uh, the, the the numbers? I suppose is part of it so that that we don't that we tend to to focus elsewhere
4: yeah i and i I don't think that uh, the historians did a particularly good job of of uh, recording uh the battles in Italy and Sicily for that matter uh it 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 was just uh, a a major uh battle that uh was extremely bloody. The sea force, for example, from the time they landed in sicily in in July through uh, the Battle of rotona had a turnover of over fifty percent. It's just extraordinary.
0: Hmm. Uh, There's a tradition that uh, continues to this day because this did happen over uh, the Christmas season. It happened in December. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the the Christmas dinner and and what tradition is is continuing even today.
4: Yeah, tonight uh, the Seaforce will have their uh, annual uh, Christmas dinner, uh, the Ortona dinner, uh, commemorating uh, the dinner that took place Uh, in in the church uh, some 75 years ago. And uh, uh, Borden Cameron, who was the uh, uh, quartermaster, uh, managed to somehow with his team corral a bunch of pigs and uh, were able to serve a a hot pork dinner to the troops that were rotated in through the church of Maria di Constampatole, and uh on christmas day and uh, uh they played uh some christmas carols although the church had was not in uh had been somewhat de- decommissioned the organ was still there so uh they were able to to play some tunes the piper uh our pipe mas pipe major uh ed essen was able to play the pipes and uh it was quite a quite a festive dinner but uh the troops knew that they were going right back into the line afterwards. Uh, some of them actually died on the way back uh, to, uh, to their positions. Um, throughout the dinner, you could hear the, the, the uh, artillery going off. Uh, it was very close to the front lines, so it was uh, not uh, particularly relaxing, but it was a, a real change for the, uh, for the troops.
0: And how close uh, do you think it is? You mentioned, you know, the, the historians. Uh, there, there seem to be some gaps in in remembering this or in documenting this. Uh, how close is the dinner uh, that's put on today to to what was actually and how it was served uh, 75 years ago?
4: Well, it, there is a tradition uh, going back to Roman times of officers serving troops, and that was part of the Ortona dinner, and that carries on through the, today. Uh, tonight, our officers will be uh, will be uh, providing the meals for the troops. Uh, the meal itself uh, is the same meal that was served uh, 75 years ago: uh, roast pork, mixed vegetables, two bottles of beer in front of each uh, place, uh, chocolate bar, an orange, and uh, and uh, some soup to start.
0: And how many people will be participating uh, in the dinner?
4: I would expect we'll have about 200 tonight. Uh, sadly, we won't, uh, I don't think, have any veterans of the Battle of Ortona. Uh, most of them have passed or are in ill health. But what we do have, and it's starting a new tradition, we have the the families coming of uh, Borden Cameron, the quartermaster, and of Padre Durnford, uh, our, our uh, padre. Uh, so we're... We're kind of focusing on the next generation,
0: and it is it is sad no veterans at the dinner uh, because a, a lot of those would have been from uh, from the Lower Mainland, weren't they?
4: Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Sea Force uh, when they uh, went overseas in 1939 uh, had uh, mainly Vancouver people and people from the interior of the province. And the interesting thing was that those those guys were together from 1939 until 19. 19- Till this battle of 1943, so they they were really really tight. They had spent a number of years in the UK training. Um, they were all good friends, uh, and uh, it made it even more difficult uh, with the with the casualties that we uh, encountered during that battle.
0: Have many of the uh, the members uh, of the C4 the the Army uh, gone to Ortona or or made that trip to go and see where the battle took place?
4: Um, a number have. I, I was there uh, uh, several years ago, and we placed a plaque uh, on the wall of the church that commemorated the battle, uh, the dinner, and uh, honoured the uh, civilians that had died during that uh, battle. But we have not had a, a major trip uh, to uh, Ortona uh, in recent years.
0: All right. So, Well, I know it'll be a very uh, interesting, a very g- a great dinner that takes place uh honoring that and keeping up with that tradition. Uh, Rod, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this today.
4: You're very welcome.
0: It is only 10 days until Christmas. Yes, today is December 15th. Earlier on in the program, I played for you a story of pretty intense giving. The story out of Phoenix, it was a CBS News story about a homeless man who had a bit of a secret Santa, and he was actually giving money to people who acknowledged him and who talked to him on the street. $100 to a lot of people. I played that because I thought it was an interesting story about giving, and certainly giving is top of mind for many people, particularly at this time of year Uh, so let's bring in michelle clausius who's the associate director of development and communications at covenant house vancouver michelle thanks so much for taking a few minutes uh, with us Oh, you're welcome. Uh, It is uh, that time of year. I think we we tend to, uh, we should be thinking about it uh, all year round, but we tend to think about it more around the holidays, and that's uh, helping out people who perhaps need a little bit more. And that's what Covenant House does uh, for a lot of young people uh, in the city. Uh, How does it change for you, uh, particularly around the holidays?
5: Well, Christmas at Covenant House can be a really difficult time for young people, many of whom don't often have happy memories of Christmas times from past years. But also, it's a time of year when most people spend time with their friends and family. So at Covenant House, we try to make
0: Christmas as home-like and as filled with love as we possibly can. And that Scott must be difficult or challenging because, like you said, it's we're it's dealing with, with with people and and people there that that don't have great memories of it or likely don't have great memories, and could be I would imagine it can be even more stressful. It can be,
5: and um, you know, a lot of the young people that come to Covenant House have mental health issues, or they may be struggling with um, the desire to use drugs or alcohol, and you know, this is the time of year when. People are celebrating, and so we try really hard to provide the young people with recreational activities that sort of take their mind off being away from home or not having a family and um, that won't tempt them to want to use drugs or alcohol. And for some some of them, it's the first time they've ever even had a Christmas outing. You know, whether a volunteer takes them skating or to the bright lights at Stanley Park, and it's a it's an amazing thing to watch them experience
0: joy at Christmas time. Um, some for the very first time. And you mentioned a volunteer. Is it the time of year? Do you look for more volunteers, or is it a busier time for the volunteers? It is. We have an amazing program at Covenant
5: House. We call it our Backpack Program, and basically starting in the middle of September um, until today, which actually is is the peak. We have uh, hundreds of volunteers that come in and they help us sort through donations and gifts. And then today we have our big backpack packing day. We have 60 people come to Covenant House, you know, children, their parents. There's a waiting list to come and help us do this. And we start an assembly line and everybody goes and and picks an item and puts it in a backpack. And then we have our... Christmas party for uh, homeless and runaway youth, and everybody gets a backpack. The young people who are staying in our residential programs get one, but even the young people who just come to our our daily drop-in program gets a backpack full of necessities
0: and also goodies. No, hmm, that and, and that must be be just uh, something that that helps people. Then even in, like you said, in this time when when dealing with, you know, people are celebrating, and for many people it's a very happy time, uh, but for many people it's not.
5: For many people, it's not, and and not just you know the young people that Covenant House sees. It, it's you know it can be it can affect a lot of people this time of year. But when we have the backing of the community of supporters that we have, I mean, Covenant House is privately funded. So we have 50,000 donors who give to us um, in in a super concentrated way at this time of year. So young people will get um, notes from our donors. They'll get cards of encouragement from our donors. And it really does help them feel like they're not
0: alone. And do you still need donations at this point, or what can people do if someone's hearing this this morning? Well, at this point, we're really
5: we're well set for uh, the items that that we need, like clothing and toiletries and those sorts of things. So, right now, it's it's just about giving um, money. <laughs> Quite frankly, you know, we we earn over sixty percent of our entire annual revenue in the months of November and December. So, you know, any extra money that someone has or if they're thinking about who they'd like to donate to this year, um, Covenant House is always
0: grateful. It is. And we often talk to, to various groups and it really is the push at this time of year, isn't it? That uh, it can be it can be top of mind for people, but maybe not so much in July or August. And the, the, what what happens in these two months needs to stretch for the entire year.
5: Pretty much. It's, it is, it's a huge drive for us and, you know, we've been challenged this year because of the postal um, issues. So we're seeing a little bit less than we would normally see and we're hoping that's going to, you know, turn around it with, with people back to work. But it's definitely now's the time that we really look to the community
0: to support the young people at Covenant House. And what are you seeing in terms of need? Are you seeing more young people or is, it, is there an increased need that, that you're noticing?
5: There is, and it's, you know, I've been at Covenant House for, for many years, and I've seen over the years that the young people coming to us um, have changed in that we see so many more young people who have had experience with the foster care system and have, you know, aged out with without any kind of safety net. Um, we're seeing more young people, um, LGBTQ presenting to Covenant House, who have you know have had family um conflict that's you know forced them out onto the streets so
0: we do see uh, more young people and their needs are more complex. Hmm. I mean even just thinking that living in Vancouver one of the most expensive places uh, I can't even imagine how somebody who ages out of foster care without help without some kind of support how do you even how do you even get an apartment how do you make a go of it? Well that that is
5: a huge issue for us right now. We have Uh, Two full-time people dedicated to helping young people find accommodations. And just this week, um, one of these um, staff people, Mark, told me a story about um, a young guy who came to our drop-in program for just some extra, you know, food and and clothing. And he was actually um, pitching a tent in uh, a guy in Surrey's backyard. And the guy was charging him $325 a month
0: to pitch his tent. Um, and he could use the bathroom. Wow, and that's and that's exactly. I guess if you have no other option, that's uh, that's what you do.
5: Yeah, there's just there's the affordability, and uh, you know a lot of these young people are coming overcoming you know challenges, and it's not all landlords are are keen on on renting to them. So there's all kinds of different issues. Not you know the most important one, obviously being just the cost.
0: All right, so if people uh, want to learn more, is the best thing to do to go to the website, or, or what should yes. someone do?
5: Yes, go to covenanthousebc.org, and we have um, information on there. We just produced a new video series people can watch and learn a little bit more about what we do at Covenant House. And, and, of course, the option to donate online is there as well.
0: All right, very timely, especially as we get closer and closer to Christmas. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it.
5: No, Thanks for having me.